Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A new problem has emerged with the ongoing border crisis, a surge in illegal child labor. Find out what the Biden administration plans to do about it. California is considering a cap on oil profits. Some say they're worried about the state deciding how much profit a business is allowed to make. Is your coffee maker spying on you? The House of Representatives wants to protect consumers who have internet-connected devices. Calls to declassify. The Energy Department's report says COVID-19 likely came from a lab leak, and now lawmakers want the public to know the details. We bring you analysis. The Biden administration has vowed to crack down on a surge in illegal child labor in the U.S. It cites a nearly 70 percent increase in kids employed unlawfully by companies over the past five years. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the administration's plans. The Department of Labor says it is working with the Department of Health and Human Services to combat child labor nationwide. It is establishing a new interagency task force to deal with the issue. The aim of the task force is to improve information sharing among agencies and advance the health, education, and well-being of children in the United States. The Department of Labor says timely information regarding active child labor investigations provides an advantage. It enables the Department of Health and Human Services to apply additional scrutiny in the sponsor vetting process. The Department of Labor says 835 companies it investigated had employed more than 3,800 children illegally. It says the maximum civil monetary penalty under current law for a child labor violation is about $15,000 per child. According to the department, that's not high enough to be a deterrent for major profitable companies. The rise in illegal child labor cases comes amid an ongoing illegal immigration crisis. There has been a surge in unaccompanied children entering the United States without their parents. Customs and Border Protection data show that 130,000 unaccompanied children were processed by U.S. officials along the southern border in 2022. The latest crackdown on child labor comes after the Labor Department announced it had fined one of the nation's largest food sanitation service providers. Packer Sanitation Services was penalized $1.5 million for employing at least 102 minors between the ages of 13 and 17. They worked in dangerous jobs cleaning meatpacking plants across 13 facilities in eight states. A company spokeswoman said the company has a strong commitment to a zero-tolerance policy against employing anyone under the age of 18. The Department of Labor said it currently has 600 child labor investigations underway and that it continues to receive complaints regarding illegal child labor across the country. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments today over President Biden's student debt cancellation plan. It's a plan that impacts millions of borrowers who could see their loans wiped away or reduced. Both individuals and several Republican-led states have sued. They claim the president is not authorized to forgive so much student debt. And so far, courts have allowed those suits to go forward. It's unclear how the Supreme Court will respond. The debt forgiveness plan would cancel $10,000 in federal student loan debt for those making less than $125,000 a year. The same goes for households bringing in less than $250,000 annually. Pell Grant recipients would get an additional $10,000 of debt relief. Democratic Congressman Jamal Bowman spoke at a student loan debt protest. I hear the same thing from constituents up and down my district 
60 and 70 years old, paying back student loans for decades and barely making a dent. College should be free. You should pay us to go to school. Because guess what? When we get out, we are contributing to this society and this democracy and this economy. The administration says about 43 million people are eligible for the debt cancellation. 26 million have already applied and 16 million have been approved. The president proposed the debt cancellation plan based on the national emergency declaration during the COVID pandemic. The justices will consider whether states and individuals can legally challenge the plan and whether the Biden administration has the authority to forgive student loans. A Texas man is convicted of Medicaid fraud, but should he also be convicted of aggravated identity theft? The Supreme Court is unconvinced. In spite of the Biden administration's arguments, several justices expressed concern that the government wants to interpret the Identity Theft Penalty Enhancement Act so broadly that it could entangle innocent people. The act adds a two-year prison sentence to individuals convicted of fraud. The petitioner worked as a managing partner in a psychology practice in Texas created by his father. Both father and son were convicted by a federal district court for a scheme to defraud Texas's Medicaid program, but the government added the identity theft penalty. The petitioner argues that the identity theft penalty is too broad and could apply to many types of fraud not normally associated with identity theft. Some of the justices seem to agree. The Supreme Court is expected to hand down its decision by June. A House committee is looking into alleged waste and abuse. The area of concern is the Biden administration's billion-dollar environmental justice award program. The committee says the EPA requested two applications for approximately $100 million to support environmental justice initiatives. This was on January 10th. Committee officials called it the largest allocation of its kind. However, they say the EPA's own case studies don't support environmental justice grant programs. They say the programs have weak standards to ensure recipients use the funds to address environmental concerns in a practical manner. Californians might have to choose between higher gas prices or scaling back its climate agenda. That's what state regulators said at a recent hearing about a proposed cap for oil profits. Here's the story. California Governor Gavin Newsom last week called a special state Senate hearing on a proposed oil industry windfall profits penalty. California lawmakers are considering imposing penalties on oil companies to restrict them from making excessive profits in the state. During the hearing, state regulators were not able to explain why gas prices spiked up to $8 a gallon last year. But the director of the California Department of Tax and Fee Administration did say the state's environmental laws contributed to the high prices. In his words, it may be California's aggressive take on environmental protection and other things. You all have to make some tough decisions about what direction the state goes, and there are trade-offs. However, the Democratic chair of the Committee on Energy, Utilities, and Communications said many factors were to blame. Some say it's standards for refineries or raising prices. Others say it's gas retailers. Others are blaming the state's taxes and environmental policies. I believe that it's all of the above. To stop gas prices from spiking, the governor wants to set a maximum margin of profit for refiners. They'd be subject to a price-gouging penalty if the margin is exceeded. The California Energy Commission says the penalty would encourage refiners to produce more gasoline to boost profits. 
However, the chair of California's Chamber of Commerce opposes the bill, saying there's a genuine concern that this basically establishes a playbook that the legislature will use to determine the reasonable profit to do business in California. He says the Chamber of Commerce is worried about the precedent this could set for the larger business community. California's budget deficit. It may be $7 billion more than the governor forecast in January. The Legislative Analyst's Office says state revenue may be about $10 billion lower than expected, which could raise the deficit to over $29 billion. The office says many factors have contributed to the revenue drop. Rising inflation spurred by federal pandemic stimulus money, federal reserve interest rate increases, and a cooling economy have all played a part. The office adds that revenue from personal income taxes and corporate taxes also declined. However, even with revenues dropping, state spending remains at historic levels. So Governor Gavin Newsom is proposing to cut back. He would delay certain investments, reduce spending in water and drought programs, and reduce climate initiatives by $6 billion in the next fiscal year. He's also proposing cuts in some housing programs, healthcare workforce investments, and transportation. The gloomy financial picture comes just a year after the state's coffers overflowed with an extra $98 billion from federal pandemic funds. Turning to Ohio, high levels of chemicals at the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine could pose long-term risks. That's according to scientists from Texas A&M and Carnegie Mellon University. They analyzed data of air pollutants from the Environmental Protection Agency The measurements suggested that nine chemicals are higher than would normally be found in the area. The scientists say if some levels remain high, it could be a problem for East Palestine residents' health in the long term. The highest levels were from a toxic chemical called acrolein, which is used to control plants, algae, rodents, and microorganisms. According to the CDC, it can cause inflammation and irritation of the skin, respiratory tract, and mucous membranes. The EPA and local government officials have repeatedly said their tests show the air quality in the area is safe and that the chemicals should dissipate. As of Sunday, officials have tested air in nearly 600 homes. The Department of Transportation is facing an audit by its internal watchdog following reports about how Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg has used government aircraft. The Office of Inspector General says Senator Marco Rubio requested the audit. It should determine whether Buttigieg complied with all applicable federal regulations. According to a memo, the audit will focus on official trips taken since January 31, 2017. Buttigieg has faced criticism over his use of these aircraft since he's pushed for policies to end using oil and gas, the same fuel used to power government jets. A 2021 report from the group Transport and Environment says government jets are, quote, 10 times more carbon intensive than airliners on average and 50 times more polluting than trains. Buttigieg responded on Twitter welcoming the review. He emphasized that his use of government aircraft was mostly for official purposes and to save taxpayer money. And coming up, the TSA is looking to hire over 400 new air marshals. A hiring drive was held yesterday amid a surge in retirement. New York City's shoe shiners find it challenging to stay in business as remote work reduces foot traffic in train stations. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The House of Representatives overwhelmingly agreed on something yesterday. What can make politicians come together? Concerns of spying. 
Now, if you're buying a device that connects to the internet, you should be told if it also comes with a camera or microphone. The requirement doesn't cover devices like telephones or laptops or any device that a consumer would reasonably expect to have a microphone or camera. The bill flew through the chamber with 406 representatives in favor and just 12 against. A recent Deloitte survey measured the number of internet-connected items in Americans' home. They found an average of 22 smart devices as of 2022. The danger of smart devices extends beyond the threat from petty scammers and data-hungry corporations. One report suggests that the CCP could secretly record Americans using coffee makers manufactured in China. An influx of people moving down south has South Carolina lawmakers debating if newcomers should pay a $500 Yankee tax to take advantage of the state's infrastructure. The bill would require incoming South Carolina residents to pay two one-time fees, $250 to obtain a driver's license and $250 to register a car. The payment is dubbed the Yankee tax because it's expected mostly to affect those moving from northern states. The bill's sponsor says this would make sure newcomers pay their fair share for roads and bridges that were funded by existing taxpayers. But one state senator argues that newcomers are paying in other ways, such as with the gas tax. Another state senator is worried it could spread newcomer tax charges into other areas of life. South Carolina is still among the top destinations Americans are moving to. If you ever wanted to be an air marshal, now could be your chance. The TSA is looking to hire over 400 new recruits for the position. A hiring drive was held in New Jersey yesterday. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the recruitment effort. We are the last line of defense. We want to make sure that we get the very best of the best. A recruitment event for new air marshals was held at Newark Liberty International Airport on Monday. After 9-11, we had a large group of people who found a calling with the Federal Air Marshal Service, and they are all due to retire, so we are in need of hiring. Candidates need to have excellent eyesight and handgun sharpshooting skills. That's to be able to effectively respond to threats in the confined space of an airplane full of people. Air marshals must also be adept at blending in. As a federal air marshal, you work undercover, and it's really important to remain undercover, and that's why we're quiet and discreet. Several hundred people applied for the positions on Monday. For me personally, the biggest thing is just uh, being able to give back and serve my country um, in some capacity. Travel, see the world, take one day at a time, like, um, and protect and serve. The TSA has several more recruitment events scheduled in different cities through the end of the year. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And U.S. Marshals on the ground said yesterday they suffered a ransomware attack on one of their systems earlier this month. The incident took place on February 17th. The Marshal Service said it disconnected the system from their network when they made the discovery and notified the Justice Department. Agents then began a forensic investigation. A spokesman for the service says the affected system contains sensitive information. That included administrative and personal information about certain employees, third parties, and subjects of investigations. Shoe shiners in New York are struggling to stay in business. They say remote work has reduced foot traffic in train stations. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. At Penn Station Shoe Repair and Shoe Shine, men read newspapers and scroll through their phones. Rory Heenan remembers a father-son monthly ritual from his childhood. He'd take the train with his dad on his way to work and watch him get a shoe shine. I would just sit here as a 
as a little guy, you know, observing, and, and here I am, you know, what is it, 30 years later, doing the same thing, right? So it's uh, certainly something that's passed down over time. But shoeshine stands like this one are disappearing across the country. Remote working and casual workwear trends are making an impact. Misan Kaimov says he used to shine 80 to 100 shoes a day pre-pandemic. Now it's between 30 to 50 Tuesday through Thursday. Mondays and Fridays are even slower. Office employees 100 percent and um, until uh, people cannot come back to work, uh, its uh, problem will not be solved, you know, and um, it's not good for uh, landlord and for tenants also like us. Still, Kaimov hasn't raised the price of an $8 shoe shine. Instead, he uses independent contractors instead of full-time employees. Yeah, we're making less profit, and, uh, but uh, our goal is to make customer happy so they come back to us again. At the nearby Port Authority bus terminal, Jairo Cardenas has run Alpha Shoes Repair Corp for 33 years, but business is slow. I usually to make it before a lot of people choose shine. We have three guys for making shine, but now I only keep only one people, yeah? So the before I usually to make it for a day, 60, 70 people for making shine for a day, but in this time just about only 10, 15 people. Cardenas is seeing an uptick in people returning to work. He hopes business returns to normal by the spring. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Authorities in Kentucky say a very brave and honest child helped them find a wanted fugitive on Friday. Whitley County Sheriff's deputies were serving a warrant at a residence for this woman, a fugitive named Tina Hicks. But none of the adults in the home would say if Hicks was inside the house. That's when deputies say a toddler stood up, put his hands on his hips, and outed the woman. The child told them, quote, it is good to be honest. We shouldn't lie. She is inside the room next to the bathroom. That's where deputies found Hicks hiding. They took her into custody and served her with multiple warrants, including charges of meth and drug paraphernalia possession. A belated tribute to a sailor who died in the Pearl Harbor attack. He was laid to rest more than 80 years after the strike. When Japanese forces capsized the USS Oklahoma at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1941, over 400 were killed. Among them was Herman Schmidt, a 28-year-old third-class gunner. Like many of his fellow sailors on board, he was first buried as an unknown soldier. It wasn't until 2021 that his identity was confirmed. That was done with the help of a DNA sample from his now 82-year-old son. None of those in attendance at Schmidt's service had met him in person. The Navy honored Schmidt with full military honors at his funeral. And just ahead, Virginia takes a stand against communist China buying up farmland. Many lawmakers fear such purchases can undermine U.S. national security. And in Southeast Asia, the U.S. has resumed a major annual exercise in Southeast Asia. We'll have the highlights soon when we return. Welcome back. A government assessment reportedly concludes that COVID-19 leaked from a lab and now some are calling for it to be declassified. Meanwhile, the State Department refreshes its criticism of how the Chinese regime handled the early virus outbreak. 
The U.S. ambassador to China says Beijing needs to be more honest about what happened in the early stages of the outbreak and accuses China of blocking from the outset an international investigation into the origins of the virus. Joining us now to discuss is Dustin Carmack. Dustin is a research fellow for cybersecurity, intelligence, and emerging technologies at the Heritage Foundation. He also served as chief of staff to former director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe. Really glad to have you with us today, Dustin. Great to be here. In the wake of the Energy Department report that says the most likely origin of the COVID pandemic was a Chinese lab leak, senators are now calling on the Biden administration to declassify materials related to the virus origins. Those include Senators Rand Paul and Mike Braun. What are the arguments for and against declassifying these materials? Well, it's twofold. I mean, whenever you're dealing with intelligence sources and methods, uh, you want to protect those. Uh, but at the, at the same time, we kind of have a problem in the uh, intelligence community that I think is observed by even those uh, in the community that some things are overclassified. And there's possibilities that you can downgrade this information in such a way and essentially scrub it uh, for the sources and methods to release more uh, information to the public, uh, which I think is really important in this context. Uh, for people to understand what's going on exactly. You touch on the importance of protecting the intelligence sources. The reason why classified reports are not declassified is because the benefit to the U.S. is outweighed by the advantage to a hostile nation that they would gain. Would Beijing gain any advantage in declassifying these? Absolutely. I, you know, one thing is that sources like from China uh, and Russia and some of these really what they call hard targets in the intelligence community are extremely difficult to get. Sometimes they cost you know, significant amounts of money, technology. There's a, you know, if you're trying to gather human intelligence sources. And so when you're wanting to protect those, it's, it really is as, as frustrating as it can be for the American public. It serves a, fi- a vital security role. It doesn't mean, though, that we can't find ways to share more information proactively with the public, though, in my opinion. And can you elaborate on what advantage this would give to the public if it were declassified? Well, I think, it, you know, we've all been essentially bulldogged for the last two or three years that we shouldn't be considering this lab leak theory to be something that could be a possibility. But from the very beginning, you know, my old boss, John Ratcliffe, has said essentially the, the information track on this was always going to go this direction because the, na- the natural origins uh, context has never really gain ground. If you've seen any kind of movement in the intelligence community's line, it has been slowly the the direction towards the lab leak theory. And that's because as time goes on, new intelligence may come about. And I think you're going to see this track work keep on moving. And so for, for China, you know, this is a problem. When we look at the broader timeline here, the Chinese regime has taken many steps to cover up the virus, including destroying evidence, silencing whistleblowers, knowing about human-to-human transmission, but withholding that information from the public for weeks. Can you please speak to the level of trust other countries have in China, potential sanctions for the CCP's virus research, and the international community's access to investigating the virus origins inside China? Well, I think I know from the United States perspective, I have zero trust, but I would say if anybody else uh, had any trust before this, they should really revisit their thoughts on this because this is you know, something that I think that everybody behind the scenes has, has realized, but hasn't wanted to call out. And so I think the United States you know, taking the lead here should be pushing on our intelligence partners and in other countries to say, hey, let's keep unpacking this because getting to the truth is important because we not only do we want accountability for the CCP in this case, but we also want to prevent a next pandemic. Yes, an international effort for accountability and transparency is important. The FBI has a moderate level of confidence of the virus that emerged from the Chinese lab. The Energy Department has a low confidence in this finding. What's the significance of this report given the size and proficiency of the department's intelligence unit? 
Well, every well, there's 18 different agencies in the intelligence community, and each have very vital uh, fundamental roles. You have your kind of big dogs, as I call them, you know, the CIA, the NSA, uh, but you also have these really intricate units like the Department of Energy, which really provide you know crucial context and have exquisite sources on particular areas. And in this case, both the FBI and the Energy Department have very good contextual resources. And so when you're looking at low to moderate confidence, it just means that they're starting to gain ground on potential sources and they want to keep flushing that out further. It doesn't mean that one is you know more significant than the other, but it's a, a sign that it is moving in one direction. Thank you for breaking down the different levels of confidence here. Dustin Carmack, Research Fellow for Cybersecurity, Intelligence, and Emerging Technologies at the Heritage Foundation. Really great to have your analysis. Thank you. Virginia is moving to ban foreign adversaries, namely Communist China, from buying farmland. Many lawmakers in recent years have expressed concerns that such purchases would undermine U.S. national security. Lawmakers in the Virginia House of Delegates and Senate recently approved a bill that bans foreign adversaries, including China, from buying farmland in the Commonwealth. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin is expected to sign this bill. He discussed the problem in his State of the Commonwealth address in January. While the national security concerns and personal privacy implications of CCP technology are well known, I believe Virginians also should be wary of Chinese communist intrusion into Virginia's economy. Virginia's list of foreign adversaries includes communist China, Cuba, Russia, North Korea, and a Venezuelan politician. The bill also requires Virginia's Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services to publish an annual report of foreign land ownership to the governor and General Assembly. Virginians, not the CCP, should own the rich and vibrant agricultural lands God has blessed us with. asking this General Assembly to send me a bill to prohibit dangerous foreign entities tied to the CCP from purchasing Virginia's farmland. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Chinese entities owned about 14,000 acres of farmland in Virginia as of the end of 2021. Most of that is tied to the 2013 purchase of Smithfield Foods, the largest pork producer in the U.S. The ban would be retroactively effective from January 1st. And speaking of security risks posed by Chinese companies, Canada is also taking action. Canada is planning to ban China-owned social media platform TikTok from all government-issued devices. Canadian Treasury Board President Mona Fortier says the ban is over concerns the app's data collection methods leave users open to cyber attacks. Effective today, TikTok will be removed from government-issued mobile devices and blocked from further downloads. A government review decided TikTok presented an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security. Fortier says there's been no evidence of any government information being compromised. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he thinks the government's move might cause the public to reconsider using the popular app. I suspect that uh, as government takes the significant step of uh, telling all federal employees that they can no longer use TikTok on their, uh, on their uh, work phones, uh, many Canadians from businesses to private individuals will reflect on the security of their own data and perhaps make choices in consequence. Canada's federal and provincial privacy regulators are also investigating the app. 
The U.S. federal government, as well as over 28 states, have banned TikTok from government devices. An update on TikTok from the U.S. side. The White House issued a new directive on Monday. It requires federal agencies and those that contract with them to remove the app from their devices within 30 days. A memo from the Office of Management and Budget added more details. Agencies must address any use of TikTok by IT vendors through contracts within 90 days. They must also include the new ban on TikTok and all new solicitations within 120 days. What would happen if China tried to take Taiwan? A war game simulation may provide the answers. And is Beijing really confident in its ability to take the island? A victory for Taiwan, with Beijing failing to seize control of the island. Both sides taking on huge losses of both troops and equipment. The scenario is the result of a war game simulation by a Japanese think tank. The game visualizes an attack by land and sea. The year set to 2026. On one side is China, on the other, Taiwan, the U.S. and Japan. After a two-week simulation battle, 40,000 Chinese soldiers were killed or wounded. China lost more than 150 warships, including two carriers, and about 170 warplanes. The other side wins, but with a heavy cost. The simulation battle shows the U.S., Japan and Taiwan losing more than 700 warplanes and over 50 warships in total. About 26,000 soldiers were killed or wounded. Among them, over 10,000 are Americans. The war game simulation runs on the premise that both sides are determined to win at any cost. Under it, the PLA, or Chinese Army, set up a command center that was able to deploy all of the country's military power, including submarines. The U.S. responded by sending out two nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and cutting-edge stealth fighter jets. Japan didn't get involved at the beginning, only allowing the U.S. to use Japanese military bases. But after Chinese planes started attacking those bases, Japan joined the battle. The turning point came when the U.S. and Japanese forces cut the PLA supply lines. Last year, the U.S.-based Center for Strategic and International Studies carried out 24 simulations showing a war over Taiwan. Those tests produced similar results, with China defeated the majority of the time. All the simulations are based on current military power of the countries involved. Though the situation might change after 2026, as as China quickly expands its military might, including nuclear weapons. War games aren't the only factor the Chinese regime would have to contend with. The Central Intelligence Agency says Beijing might be more hesitant to invade Taiwan than it lets on. CIA Chief William Burns said based on U.S. intel, Chinese leader Xi Jinping has instructed his country's military to be ready by 2027 to invade the island. Though that doesn't mean a 2027 invasion is imminent. Burns added that he may be harboring doubts about his ability to win that kind of war. That's in light of Russia's experience in its invasion of Ukraine. Despite that forecast, Beijing is adjusting its laws, paving the way for war. According to Chinese state media, Beijing issued an order on Saturday involving China's criminal law. The change says the Chinese army can take over the judiciary during times of war and grants the military permission to adjust certain legal procedures. How that would work? To be decided by the CCP's Central Military Commission. 
China affairs analyst Lai Jianping believes it's part of Beijing's preparations to attack Taiwan. From the day the Taiwan attack is launched, there will be a so-called legal environment to serve its invasion. It's to force soldiers to fight and be cannon fodder unconditionally. Another China affairs analyst, Tang Jinyuan, makes another point. He says as long as wartime declaration remains active in China, anyone who voices opinions that stray from Beijing's narrative could be at risk, meaning army soldiers emboldened with Beijing's authority could start making arrests. How determined is Taiwan to fight the Chinese Communist Party if a military conflict were to break out? Taiwan's defense minister said Friday that Taiwan would fight to the end until all guns have been fired. He added that the Chinese regime would be unable to take Taiwan within two weeks. The comments responded to a number of expert questions suggesting that China learned from Russia's war in Ukraine and would likely seek a quick takeover of Taiwan. Defense Minister Chiu pointed out that no matter how fast it wants to move, Beijing's army must still cross the Taiwan Strait. The body of water acts as a natural barrier between the island and mainland China. Plus, Chiu says the Taiwanese army has been exercising its combat readiness daily. The official went on to acknowledge that though some Taiwanese soldiers could die in battle, none of them would surrender without a fight. The United States is kicking off an annual military drill with Thailand. Cobra Gold, it's one of the largest and longest-running exercises in Southeast Asia. During this year's Cobra Gold, nearly 6,000 participants will employ fifth-generation aircraft, amphibious assault, airborne operations, special operations forces, and we will conduct integrated ops across the land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace with our partners. The exercise is back in full swing after a two-year COVID-19 break. More than 30 countries are participating. For the first time ever, the exercise will include space operations to give troops experience with things like solar storms and disruptions to communication systems. The exercise is set to run through March 10th. Looks can be deceiving. Police say this Thai drug dealer disguised himself as a Korean man using plastic surgery. Last Thursday, Thai police raided a condo in the suburbs of Bangkok, the hideout of an alleged drug smuggler who had been on the run for months. The man they found went by a Korean name and was described to police as a good-looking Korean man with wavy hair and smooth skin. But he wasn't Korean. Police say the 25-year-old Thai national had attempted to reinvent himself as a Korean by changing his name, his haircut, and undergoing multiple plastic surgery procedures until his face had completely changed. Before and after photos show a dramatically different look. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, the Prime Minister claims a decisive breakthrough as the UK and EU announce a solution to fix post-Brexit problems in Northern Ireland. And a Scottish court sentences a transgender rapist to eight years in jail. The criminal has been at the centre of controversy. More shortly here on NTD News Today. The UK and the EU have struck the Windsor Framework Agreement, hailed as a decisive breakthrough to resolve the issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Rishi Sunak said it will remove lots of customs paperwork and add a provision to enable Northern Ireland to block EU laws. 
This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has agreed to a potential breakthrough Brexit deal with EU chief Ursula von der Leyen. Struck to fix the problems with the Northern Ireland Protocol, it now needs to win the support of MPs, particularly the DUP and Eurosceptic Tories. Speaking after his return to London, Sunak gave a statement in Parliament. I pay tribute to our European friends for recognising the need for change, particularly President von der Leyen. My predecessors for laying the groundwork for today's agreement. And And my right honourable friends, the Foreign and Northern Ireland Secretaries, for their perseverance in finally finally persuading the EU to do what it spent years refusing to do, to rewrite the treaty and replace it with a radical, legally binding new framework. Following weeks of mounting speculation, Sunak and von der Leyen finalised the deal in Windsor on Monday. Dubbed the Windsor Framework, it will implement a green lane and a red lane for trade across the Irish Sea. It's the same idea as the two-lane system proposed last June in Liz Truss's Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. The green lane for UK-only goods, the red for those destined to the EU. Sunak said the Windsor framework will remove a lot of paperwork. In the green lane, burdensome customs bureaucracy will be scrapped. It means food retailers like supermarkets, restaurants and wholesalers will no longer need hundreds of certificates for every lorry. And unlike the protocol, today's agreement means people sending parcels to friends or family or doing their shopping online will have to complete no customs paperwork. Northern Ireland will still be in part subject to EU laws. And von der Leyen said the European Court of Justice is the ultimate arbiter of EU law. But the Windsor framework has added a so-called stormant break a provision Northern Ireland can use to block new EU legislation. If the break is pulled, the UK government will be able to veto their new EU law. Von der Leyen said this is an emergency measure. I think important is uh, in our Windsor framework that we are putting also in place several mechanisms that should avoid having to resort to the storm and break, which is an emergency mechanism. So extensive consultations with the UK and Northern Ireland stakeholders on new EU laws, but also consultations of the EU by the UK on UK-planned regulatory changes. This is important for us. It's a curious comment. Von der Leyen seems to say that the EU will take part in consultations on new UK regulations. This could be seen as a step backwards by Eurosceptic MPs who have sought to ensure the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. And as for the Stormont's break, the government said it will work on a cross-community basis. It looks like that means pulling the break will require the support of both unionists and nationalists. TUV leader Jim Allister said if that's the case, the break will come with a nationalist veto. But so far, this is just a surface reading. The exact details of the deal will be reviewed thoroughly over the coming days and weeks. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. Staying in the UK, energy regulator Ofgem has cut the amount that suppliers can charge households for energy, but bills will still rise in April as government help for households eases. 
Ofgem's announcement does not directly change what consumers will pay for electricity and gas, but it does reduce contributions from the government. That means consumers will pay about 20% more from April, with average bills set to rise from 2,500 pounds to 3,000. The rise will happen because government help, known as the Energy Price Guarantee, will be reduced, and a 400-pound winter discount on bills ends. Energy suppliers are currently compensated by the government with the difference between the Energy Price Guarantee and Ofgem's Energy Price Cap. Ofgem is lowering its price cap for the average household from about 4,300 pounds to about 3,300 pounds from April because of falling wholesale prices. The cap indicates how much consumers on a basic tariff would pay if the government's energy price guarantee was not in place. A rapist who identifies as transgender and who was initially held in an all-female prison has been the center of controversy. Now a Scottish court has decided on a sentence, eight years in jail. Isla Bryson was found guilty in January of raping two women in 2016 and 2019. Prosecutors say the crimes involved preying on vulnerable victims. Afterward, Bryson started to identify as a transgender woman. The rapist was initially held at a women's prison in central Scotland, which caused an uproar. Activists, politicians, and a United Nations human rights expert all raised concerns about the safety of other inmates. The government confirmed Bryson would be moved. Weeks ago, the Scottish Parliament passed a bill to make it easier for people to change their legal gender, drawing criticism from some women's rights activists who argue that predatory men could take advantage of the law. The British government has since said it would block the Scottish effort. At a German airport yesterday, only two flights took off as scheduled. The reason? A 24-hour worker strike. At another airport, nearly three-quarters of flights were grounded. The union represents more than 2.5 million federal employees. It's demanding a 10.5% pay raise or at least $500 more per month. Monday saw fresh chaos for air travellers in Germany. Hundreds of flights were grounded by strikes at Dusseldorf and Cologne-Bonn airports. The stoppage was called last week by the Verdi Workers' Union. It said there was no alternative after talks on pay for airport workers broke down. On Monday, Union Secretary Jose Tarim said there would soon be further negotiations. We will hold talks with the employers in March, and our goal is, of course, to reach a deal. But if the employers continue to refuse to come up with a proposal, the workers' reaction will be clear. We will respond with a strike, which is not what we want, but if the employers don't cooperate, this will be the result. Tarim says the union is asking for extra pay on Sundays and public holidays, as airports are round-the-clock operations. On Monday, the Dusseldorf and Cologne hubs were largely deserted as passengers were informed in time to change their plans. Major carriers at the airports include Lufthansa and Turkish Airlines. Earlier this year, unions brought flights to a standstill at seven German airports, including Frankfurt and Munich. The stoppages affected nearly 300,000 passengers. And coming up, a candelabra-making tradition in Ukraine returns after it was banned under Soviet rule. Contemporary artists use old pieces as inspiration. A 50-year-old nuclear bunker welcomes visitors for the first time. Denmark built the bunker during the Cold War to house the government if nuclear war broke out. Stay tuned for more on that when we return.
Good to have you back. In Ukraine, a candelabra-making tradition is gradually reappearing since it was banned under Soviet rule. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on the candle contraband. This Ukrainian artisan carves wood with precision to make these candelabras. He says he started as a child and learned from his father. We take samples from ancient Trinity, from museums where they are stored. We look at books and catalogs. From there you take the shape, ornamental or non-ornamental elements, you think which one you want to have. But you are making them according to your vision. The Soviet Union banned religious rituals. As a result, the craft was lost. When we go to fairs, people are interested in what we do, especially if they are from the regions where they don't know. And those who know are happy they buy something, because they know what it is and appreciate it. Ukrainian artist Bodan Soraka had the most extensive private collection of Trinity candelabras in Ukraine. After his death, his family continued to look after it. On Epiphany, people lit candles in the houses. Three candles were placed near water to baptize fire with water. This was a pagan custom that was passed on to Christianity. Of course, when the Soviet regime was established, people were forbidden to gather together. They were forbidden to celebrate Epiphany, and those candelabras became useless. Each candelabrum differs in symbolism and carving. Some depict angels with wings, wind, fire, and the sun. This beautiful trio is from Brewstery. There's a whole scene depicted here, like Jesus Christ in the Jordan River, John the Baptist, and two angels. The KGB had always been interested in Soraka's family. His parents were political prisoners for more than 30 years. In fact, Soraka was born in prison. These candle holders are a reminder of Soviet tyranny during the Cold War. Their history is particularly relevant as Moscow continues to wage its war in Ukraine. The collection endures, with contemporary artists using it for inspiration. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A Cold War-era nuclear bunker in Denmark is open to visitors for the first time. Current tensions between Russia and the West make the experience particularly relevant. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the Danish fallout shelter. Amid the towering trees in northern Denmark is Regan Vest. The once top-secret nuclear bunker was built at the height of the Cold War. The fear of a war in well, Central in, in Europe was very real. Uh, and at the same time, also the uh, nuclear bombs, and especially the hydrogen bombs, has evolved. And they were so devastating that you had to do something else of what you have done before. You have to think in another way. Regan Vest was designed to house Denmark's government if nuclear war were to erupt. Most people thought that the war would be settled within these 30 days. If you could manage to hold the country for this first period, then you probably had a chance to remain in control and to win the war. A long, winding 1,000-foot concrete corridor brings visitors 200 feet below a hill. Here, a sprawling subterranean complex houses bedrooms, a cafeteria, and a war room. This area is what you would call the map room, and I would say that it was the heart of the building, so to say. It was um, where the government was supposed to be gathered and to take all the serious decisions. Ashtrays and other 60s-style decor take visitors back in time. You can see about everything here. And it, it is just as if 
they sort of left rooms when the Cold War stopped and then abandoned the place and went out. So you can see yeah, paper clips, paper, furniture. The bunker and its history are especially relevant today. Just facts that you have a war on European soil and also that the, um, the threat of a nuclear war is actually something you speak about. Makes this very relevant suddenly. Regan Vest opened as a museum on February 13th. The experience includes a guided tour of the facility. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, the NTD International Figure Painting Competition is back and is now calling for entries. We'll take a closer look at the requirements after the break. The NTD International Figure Painting Competition is back and is now calling for entries. To all the talented artists out there, this is your chance. Let's take a closer look at the requirements. The lasting beauty of realistic oil painting. This is NTD's sixth international figure painting competition. The mission is to promote the pure beauty, goodness, and authenticity of traditional painting. Professor Zhang Kun Lun is an accomplished sculptor. He's also the jury chair of the competition. According to him, a strong technical foundation is crucial for an artist. And a good work of art also needs an excellent overall presentation. But only submissions of figure paintings will be accepted. Why? People are always at the center of activities in society. Painting the human figure is the hardest. It can best test one's ability. There is also a spiritual perspective. Various faiths say that divine beings created man in their own image. Therefore, using authentic academic realism painting techniques is a way to show respect to humanity ourselves. In addition to realism techniques, submissions must convey positive ideals such as righteousness, compassion, and beauty. Art can hasten either the elevation or degeneration of people's moral standards. Good artwork can broaden people's minds and make them a nobler person. And since the artwork reflects an artist's inner world, Zhang stresses the importance of a pure mind for artists. If an artist wants to produce good artwork, the artist must first be a good person, a person with a higher moral standard than others. When one creates art, one must continuously purify oneself. He also said that realism artists today shoulder an important responsibility. Persisting with traditional fine art in today's society is itself something remarkable. He believes that the competition provides a great chance for artists who adhere to tradition to showcase their talents. By participating in this competition, accomplished oil painters from all over the world can share and learn from each other, so it's a great opportunity to improve. And the professor has high hopes for contestants. People's art will prosperously reappear and take a righteous path, this is for sure. These artists, I hope they can all create brilliance in fine art of men. There is also an award. The competition offers over $25,000 in prizes, including $10,000 for the gold award. Artists can submit their best work until June 15th, and we can all look forward to the finalist exhibition and auction in New York later in the year. Hunching over our devices is ruining our posture and degrading our quality of life. Let's get some tips on how to improve it. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body.
In the era of sedentary living, we spend our time on computers and mobile devices. Our health and posture is paying the price. We fold our bodies into a chair, craning the neck to look at a screen. We have our shoulders rolled forward all day long. This can contribute to negative thoughts and emotions. It can also contribute to poor mobility, headaches, joint pain, and prevent our organs from functioning optimally. Ideally, posture should be such that you are standing completely straight when relaxed. If you were to draw a line, it would move from the ears, through the shoulders, hips, and knees, down through your ankles. Instead, we have our shoulders and necks rolled forward and hips pushed back. Fortunately, posture can be improved with a few lifestyle changes. These are a few things you can do at home right now. Start by standing up and moving around. Too much sitting is highly associated with posture problems and joint pain. The remedy is simple, increase activity. Try to include more movement during the day and aim to stand up or go for a little walk. Even if it's to the mailbox and back, it's better than nothing. Increase your activity over time. Next, bring your phone to your face. Ideally, you use your smartphone less, but for many people, it's simply become an extension of the human body. Bringing your phone up to eye level instead of looking down at the screen can help the shoulders and neck. It can also prevent neck strain, back aches, and headaches. Another tip, you could also consider working with a physical therapist or movement specialist. They can assist with poor mobility and compromised posture problems. Researchers are sounding the alarm on a popular artificial sweetener. The study found erythritol can double the chance of a heart attack or stroke. That's for people in the top 25% of those with the sweetener in their blood. The problem appears to be that it causes blood to clot more easily, which can cause problems when those clots break off and travel to the heart. Researchers warn erythritol increases risk for heart attack and stroke as much as having diabetes does. You may have never heard of the sweetener because it's not typically used on its own. Instead, erythritol is frequently used to add to bulk sativa, monk fruit, and other sweeteners popular for people eating a keto diet. The study was published in the journal Nature Medicine. A pair of busy bald eagles show us some DIY home repair as they prepare to take parenting seriously. Take a look at this. If teamwork makes the dream work, then these bald eagles are an all-star ensemble. We call this move home improvement via synchronized stick movement. These lovebirds at the National Conservation Training Center recently laid two eggs, and to keep any eager eagles from trying to take over their nest, the terrific tandem adds the extra layer of security to keep their future little ones safe. Such good parents. Are these picture-perfect polar bears sleepy? Silly? Stunning? All of the above. Parks Canada released these selfies in honor of International Polar Bear Day. From the remote cameras at Wapis National Park, we get a close, closer, maybe too close look at some of our finest and furriest friends. Smile for the camera. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Music